please remain standing if you're able. And let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 12. Page 1008 in the Blue Bible. Hebrews 12. And we'll read the entire chapter. Hear God's holy word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice 
uh, and a voice whose words made the, hev- the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, I reverse the scripture readings today. I think I'll try to continue doing that. We'll read the Old Testament reading first, but we are looking at the Old Testament reading. We're in Exodus. Uh, I thought we might uh, press on after our study of Genesis and uh, dig in for a little while at least to the sequel of Genesis. That's what uh, this book of Exodus is. Uh, It's the second of the five books of Moses. Uh, Genesis began telling us about the one true God. That's how the book opens. This great God who created the world and all things. And then as the book continues to unfold, we see the the earliest ages of world history recorded there uh, in chapters 1 through 11. And then comes the main storyline of the book, the story, the narrative of God's dealings with Abraham and his descendants in chapters 12 through 50. And that story uh, came to a close uh, with the death of Joseph at the end of the book and with Israel there in Egypt. That's where we left them, but that wasn't, of course, the end of the story. The story of God's work with his people continues continues here in the book of Exodus. Exodus is a story that has a a lot of relevance for us. It's a book that is very relevant for us as Christians. 
And that is because it is the story of deliverance. Deliverance from bondage, slavery, through a savior. And so in a, a real sense, it's the story of our lives, the story of our redemption, the story of the Christian life. We are like the people of Israel. We are slaves uh, by nature as sinners. But now we too have been set free by God and his redemption. Philip Ryken writes, as we trace in this book the spiritual journey of the Israelites, we discover that we need exactly what they needed. We need a liberator. We need a God who will save us from slavery and destroy our enemies. We need a provider, a God who will feed us bread, bread from heaven and water from the rock, as it were. And we need a lawgiver as well. We need God to command us how to love him and to serve him. And we need a friend, a God who will be our friend and stay with us day and night forever. I hope you can see the similarities between us and the people of God of old. Israel's deliverance from Egypt prefigured this great salvation that has now been accomplished once and for all by the Lord Jesus Christ, our deliverer. And so studying the book of Exodus will be uh, fruitful. It will be of um, great benefit to us as believers. It isn't a, a book for the people of Israel. It is for us. If you doubt that, just I'll remind you that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, the Old Testament was written not for them, but for us. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Paul, of course, was talking about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, wandering in the wilderness, and so on. These things, these things were written for us, for our good, for our edification in the faith. And it has so much application for our lives. I'm not committing to go all the way through this book. Uh, there are some other things I'd really like us to uh, profit from, other books of Scripture that I'd like to jump into. But for now, we'll, uh, we'll press on into the book and... Uh, do trust that the Lord will bless it and we will benefit from it greatly. So as the book opens, um, we see God was doing as he had promised. That's exactly what's happening here. Promise and fulfillment. We're only looking at the first seven verses today, but already here we're seeing that. We're seeing God's faithfulness in action. We're introduced to the 12 tribes uh, of Israel there in verses 1 through 5. Just a, a short snippet about them. But think about this. 
They are tribes at this point. This was just a tiny little family when they came down to Egypt, a small um, band of brothers and their wives and children. Only 70 people in all came down. That's certainly a nice-sized family. Those would, they would have some uh, great family gatherings with that many people, but that's small potatoes in comparison to what the Lord intended to do for this little family. Only 70 people came down from the land of Canaan, and yet God promised to make them as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. He promised to make them a great nation. Abraham would be uh, the father of a people um, too great to number, innumerable. And now we see here that he did bring that growth. God's word never fails. We need to take that away from this. God's word never fails. He always accomplishes what he promises to do. What he purposes, he will bring to fulfillment. And that's what we see here as the sons of Jacob became the nation of Israel. It was all about God, all about God's faithfulness in action. And the very first word in verse 1 uh, is the word and, indicating the connection between uh, the Exodus and what came before it, the book of Genesis, and all that unfolded there. Genesis contained all those great promises of God, and now here in Exodus we're seeing promises fulfilled, promises kept. It's interesting to think of these, these characters that God was working with, these sons of Jacob. They were um, not very impressive. They were not spiritual giants. Uh, well, we have one who we might call a hero of the faith, and that was Joseph himself, but even that was all of God's grace, and he would acknowledge that. But the rest of these men... Uh, as individuals were not uh, much at all to speak of, not the kind of men you would want to emulate, not wise, they were not powerful, they were not good. In fact, they were quite bad. They were liars, they were sexually immoral, they were murderers, pretty terrible examples, in fact. One commentator called them the dirty dozen. And that's fitting. They were not the good guys. They were not righteous men. And we should really marvel at the fact that God had anything to do with them. But of course, that should be a great comfort to us. The sons of Israel were miserable sinners, just like we are. By nature. They really had only one thing going for them, each and every one of them, and all the people that came from them. And that one thing that they had going for them was that they had a gracious, faithful God who was committed to them. 
That is just the same for us. God is the one thing that we have going for us. We have such a great, gracious, kind and merciful, loving God who treats us really just the opposite of how we deserve, so much better than we deserve. We'd be completely lost without him. We are no better than those men by nature. It's only God's unfailing commitment that saves us. It's not our commitment to him. That's important too. But it's certainly not our commitment to him that saves us. It's his commitment to us. It's his grace that makes us alive in Christ and draws us into a living relationship with him so that we then do begin to love him and commit to to being his people and serving him. And it's his commitment that makes us his people. And we see there his plan and his purpose and therefore his great desire. He desires to have a people for his own possession. A people who will glorify him, who will love him, who will live in union and communion with him. Later in Exodus 34, we'll read of of God's character. He revealed himself to Moses as such a good God, such a, a wonderful God. He spoke of himself and identified himself as the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. We are so blessed that this is the kind of God that the true God is. If he was not so merciful and gracious and loving, he wouldn't give us the time of day. He would not put up with us. But he is that kind of God. And he does persevere with us. And that is the reason that we're saved and not consumed. Despite what we deserve, he is so good and gracious and gives us so much better than we deserve. We have a saving, loving relationship with this wonderful God now through the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he's done for us on the cross. He saved us and he has claimed us to be his own beloved people. And it's all his doing. It's all of his grace. And all because he loved us. Though there was nothing lovely about us. Well, God was showing himself to be for these people of Israel in the same way he has shown himself to be for us. During their time of suffering and bondage in Egypt, he was for them. He was with them. He was on their side. 
And look at how he shows that by keeping his promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Look at verses 6 and 7. We read there, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Again, they, they started as just a tiny handful of 70. But we're told at this point the land was full of them. And this really isn't just a historical note about them. Again, we are to think of the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. This is the promise keeper in action. Now the land part of God's promise had yet to be fulfilled still in the future. But the seed part of the promise, we're seeing it fulfilled here. It's, it's already being fulfilled there. They were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. And it was all of the Lord. It was all the Lord's doing. He was working out His promises, blessing His people. Let's uh, review a few other passages where God made those great promises that we're seeing fulfilled here. When Jacob set out to go down to Egypt with his family, you remember that he was not too excited about that idea. He was not keen on the thought of leaving Canaan. And there was a reason for that. It was because he knew that was the promised land. That was the land that God had promised to his people. But God appeared to him and said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. God reaffirming his promises to Abraham. And here we see that in verse 7, Exodus 1. God had been bringing that all to pass. He comforted Abraham with that reaffirmation of his promise. He said, all those things, all those promises I made, they're going to be realized down there in Egypt. That's where I'm going to do that work. It's going to be an incubator for your people, Abraham. And we see that. That great nation was in development at this point, at the opening of the book of Exodus, they're still enslaved. They're still trapped there in this foreign land, but there are already huge numbers of them. It's just a matter of time now before these many individual people in these tribes becomes a great nation. It's happening. It's happening. Remember another passage in Genesis in chapter 35, remember when God gave Jacob a new name, he said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. It's the same promise, different wording, 
But it's the same promise, the same old promise that God had given to Abraham. And now he reaffirms it to Jacob. There's a unity to all these promises. There really is one promise that God gave, and he's fleshing it out in history. That promise God made to Abraham, he's just restating it. He's reaffirming it over and over again. He does that in the book of Genesis, and he's developing it further. He's reaffirming it to his people so that they'll believe but it's the same promise in substance. Listen to God's promise to Abraham going further back, back in Genesis 17. God said, I will confirm my covenant with you, and I will greatly increase your numbers. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. Now, that was to Abraham, even further back in history. And then going even further back to the, to the start of God's dealings with Abraham, when he was still in Ur, in the, Chaldean, the land of the Chaldeans, God said to him, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So again, not a bunch of different promises, but one promise. And in Exodus 1, we're seeing that promise fulfilled. Let's go back even further, though, before Abraham and his time. Think of the promise that God made after the flood. It's sometimes called the Noahic covenant. The Lord said to Noah and his sons, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Now that covenant and the promises that accompanied it were very broad in scope. It has to do with the repopulation of the whole earth and God's commitment not to destroy it again by water. But there's also a connection with what we see being fulfilled here in the Exodus. That command to be fruitful and multiply is being fulfilled here in the way Israel is being fruitful and multiplying. That was God's purpose, ultimately, in sparing humanity back in the days of Noah and through Noah. His purpose was to make a people for himself, a people would, who would be his own covenant people. And that command to be fruitful and multiply, of course, it didn't come first to Noah and his sons. It came all the way back in Genesis 1 to Adam and Eve. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. So what was happening here to Israel, the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, really goes all the way back there to the creation. God's purpose for humanity 
God's will for his creation before the fall is being realized and advanced here through the Israelites. They were like a little microcosm of what God intended originally for all mankind to be his people, to be in union and communion with him. And of course, all that went awry in the fall. But here God is forming a new creation for himself, a new humanity, if you will, with the people of Israel, a people that would be his people, people who would worship him, a people who would serve him. He's fulfilling that plan, starting again with this multitude of the Israelites. But this group of people called Israel is not the end of God's promises. It's not the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. It is one further very significant stage in the development of his plan of redemption. But really what we're seeing here, even here in the beginning of Exodus, is the growth of the church of God under the old covenant. That's what we're seeing here. Think of a, think of a small sapling that grows from a tiny seed. Maybe you've got acorns uh, in your yard, and uh, if the conditions are right, that acorn might get into the ground, and you might have a new tree sprout up from it. It becomes a tiny sapling first growing up. Boy, I've got one in my front yard. I cut down an oak tree, and that thing just keeps trying to come back. <laughs> it's like... Uh, it just never, never stops trying to come back. It just sprouts up to a new sapling over and over throughout the year. I have to keep hacking it down. But think of that. A small sapling is the beginning of a tree. It grows from a tiny seed, but it takes a long time to reach full maturity. And when it reaches full maturity, that's your tree. You've got a full-grown tree. And that's how we can think about Israel in the Old Testament in relation to the church in the New Testament. Israel is the sapling, but the full-grown tree is the New Testament church made up of Jews and Gentiles alike who are united together and redeemed and made one through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot that we can learn by looking back on the growth of the sapling, though. By looking back on Israel's experiences as we see them here uh, in Exodus and elsewhere in the Old Testament. We can learn from their experiences. We can learn a lot from their failures, and we're supposed to. We learn from their mistakes so that we, Lord willing, don't repeat the same mistakes. We can learn so much about God as he made himself known to them. We can learn about how he instructs us through how he instructed them and how he provided for them. We can learn of 
how he provides for us. We can learn how he desires obedience from us and how he even chastens us as his beloved children. He loves us too much to let us go. He chastens us so that we'll be conformed to his image and so that he can keep us and transform us. We also have much greater advantages, though, than the Israelites had. Again, all these things were written for us. All these Old Testament scriptures written for our instruction. And thankfully, we have even more than that. We're so blessed to have the whole New Testament, all the New Testament scriptures written for us to instruct us, to show us again how God has fulfilled his promises. That's how you should think about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just as you think about Genesis and Exodus, promise and fulfillment. The Old Testament is promise. The New Testament is the fulfillment. And we are so blessed to have all those scriptures to teach us and to guide us. And not only that, but we, under the New Covenant, have the Holy Spirit. The same one who inspired the Old and New Testament scriptures has come to live within us. The author of scripture lives in you and I, believer. And he comes to teach our hearts in a living way to know the Lord and to walk with him. So let's take full advantage of what God has preserved in Scripture for us. Let's learn from the Word of God. Let's learn all that we can, learn all that we need to learn so that we can learn Christ, our need for Him and how God has provided Him uh, as the fulfillment of all His promises and the fulfillment of all our needs. The whole Old Testament points to Him. He is the promise. Just as he told his disciples on the road to Emmaus, all these scriptures are about me. He was leading them through the Old Testament scriptures. Isn't that beautiful? And the Spirit works in us with that word that he inspired for us, the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures. He works in our hearts through that word. May God bless our time studying this book and draw us uh, as we study his word privately as well, drawing us into an ever-deepening walk with him and with his son who has accomplished our true exodus, our full redemption through his work on the cross and through his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is such a wonder that you've given us the scriptures. We need to know you, and you have made yourself known through your word. We pray that you would cause your word to grip our hearts, even this study of this story of your redeeming grace and love 
and your glorious plan to save a people for yourself and to make us your beloved, spotless bride. We thank you for that glorious work, and we pray that you would bring it home to each of our hearts by your spirit. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.